Broadcasting live from the Erotica Library, this is the Monstrous Feminine Podcast, the film club where we dissect the eerie intersections of gender in horror. My name is Mila, and I'm joined by my handmaidens, Louisa, Taya, and Zeba. And welcome to season four. We're kicking off the new season with a Valentine's Day special. This year, our romance of choice is the 2016 thriller directed by Park Chan-wook, The Handmaiden. Before we get into the film, consider joining The Coven by following us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcasts app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. In The Handmaiden, a Korean pickpocket named Suk-hee is recruited by a con man, Count Fujiwara, to assist his plan of seducing a Japanese heiress named Lady Haideko. The Count wishes to marry Haideko so that he can later commit her to a mental asylum and steal her inheritance. He promises Suki a portion of the cut if she poses as Haideko's maid and encourages her to marry him. Lady Haideko lives under the watchful eye of her uncle Kazuki, a Korean man who raised Haideko after the suicide of her aunt, with the aim of marrying her and hence marrying into Japanese nobility. With no allies in the house and forced to perform mysterious readings of Kazuki's precious antique books for his guests, Haideko and Suki soon develop a powerful bond that threatens to unravel the plan as alliances are tested. Well, this year, you guys are all my Valentines, because this is year four of us doing this, and there's no one else I'd rather do it with. My sweethearts. Do you mean us, or like... Kind of means us. You three people. Ah! Okay. The longest relationship of my life. Yeah, play Kiss Me Through the Phone. You can sing it. I can- Unfortunately, I can't. <laughs> All I remember is Kiss Me Through the Phone. Kiss What's like the next bit? I see you when I get home. Get home. Yep. Period. What's the number? Six, seven, eight, triple, nine, three, two. You really tapped into some core memories there. Wow. Wow. Yeah, we are each other's Valentines. Yeah. Yeah, we just, we're going to exchange Valentine's Day gifts at some point. Are we? Uh, no, we're not. We haven't done that. So <laughs> maybe next year when we're more organized. Just, it's a thought that counts. And I thought about y'all a lot and with positive feelings. I thought about you guys too. What do you think would be like our perfect date, collective date? Oh, all four of us? Okay. Okay, hear me out. Hear me out. A wedding cake tasting? You know how they bring you out little bites of all the kinds of wedding cake? Okay, but I don't like cake. I don't like icing, but I like cake. I just don't like the icing on it. I didn't know you didn't like cake. Okay, so Zebra and I are going to the cake. <laughs> okay, you found your guys' perfect date. You guys date. would go to the wedding dress try-on. Oh my god, I would fucking I would love that. I would love that. What is your favorite Valentine's Day candy? I don't like candy very much. I'm a chocolate girl. I like the sweet tart hearts. You know, the, like not like the sweet hearts that have the messages on them, but not the chalky nasty brand, the sweet tart brand message hearts. I think they're called sweet hearts. They made a situation strip one, I think, this year. And it says, like, um, I hope you know how I feel about you because I don't. Society's in the trenches. <laughs> I just want 
I just want romance back. The Monstrous Women is on Spotify, so please leave us feedback on the episodes after listening. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out on our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Claire, who commented on our Barbarian Hagsploitation themed episode and said, Love this app. Great points made about how the perception of hagsploitation is influenced by your own fears if you personally find the aging body of a woman horrific. Thanks so much for that, Claire. Um... I definitely agree. Just recently had a birthday, feeling the fear of age. 28 is so young. Don't dox my age. We have doxed our age. That is not doxing. <laughs> we have had multiple discussions about how we are of a certain age. Not of a certain age, please. It makes us really sound haggish. Thanks so much, Claire. I hope that you're having a great day, great year. Good things happen to you. You're our Valentine, like, officially. Yeah, true. You're our Valentine. We love you, Claire. We hope you uh, receive our Valentine's energies, uh, our metaphorical and spiritual boxes of chocolate and and sweethearts and uh, kisses and roses and the like. Every time you start naming a bunch of candy, I start hearing the song Candy Shop by 50 Cent. Let's play that uh, non-copyright version. You gonna back that thing up? Who should I push up on it? I didn't have to pick those ones to say. <laughs> Clara, I'm really sorry. Um, I hope you have a really wholesome Valentine's Or maybe, you know what? You, whatever your, you know, whatever your expectations are, maybe it is in that, in that tone. And that's fine. Friendly reminder that we are also on Patreon. For one pound a month, you gain access to our Discord. For £3 a month, you get to hear a cut discussion for our main episode. And for £5, you get all of that, plus the opportunity to pick our themes, films, and discussion points. Please support us. Any contribution helps. Okay, so question number one. Is it true that this is a horror movie podcast? Yes, that's true. Is it true that The Handmaiden is not a horror? Also true, it's a thriller. Um, is it my follow-up true that anyone who thinks that we shouldn't be doing it should mind their business? What kind of genre fascists are you telling us that we can't <laughs> do something? It's a Valentine's special. Also, this was left up to a vote. <laughs> our May Queens on our Patreon voted for us to do The Handmaiden. So if you would like to have a say in what films we do in the future, then please pledge to us on Patreon and then you can have more of a say but for now you're stuck in this dictatorship more reason why we should do this film is that our may queen love witch had an excellent point when they submitted to us on patreon yay so excited for this one i love this film it's so slippery in terms of genre which i think is a big part of what makes it interesting it's simultaneously a period drama horror heist movie thriller lesbian romance And you can't rely on rules or tropes of any of those genres to predict what's coming next. And I think that encapsulates this really well and shows why I think there's still a lot of, well, we, we think there's still a lot of like mon femme and interesting points to cover in this, even if it's not strictly horror. It's kind of gothic. By the end, when there's, you know... There's knives and blood and castrations or threats of castrations. We can just call it all under the umbrella of Monstrous Feminine. 
what do we think about The Handmaiden? I, for one, love it. I loved it as well. I was thoroughly entertained for all two and a half hours, which I was daunted with at first. I had never seen it. I heard about it from my work friend slash colleague who was like, oh, you should see The Handmaid. I think you'd really enjoy it. I think they even suggested that we do it for the pod or that we might enjoy it for the pod. And like, in retrospect, knowing this work friend slash colleague totally makes sense that uh, they suggested this one. I wish my friend and you all who had seen this film before would have said, hey, Zeba, maybe this is a, a laptop in your room kind of movie and maybe not a put it on the biggest TV in your living room while your roommates clean up and cook and go about their days. I would never suggest that. I would I would always advocate for you watching erotic films in those But I think I did not give fair warning while somebody was making a, a ragu that there would be such explicit content. Like the sounds alone, and this happened with Perfect Blue. The sounds <laughs> sound alone. <laughs> A lot of like heavy breathing, a lot of slurping. And they actually set the scene for you. Sebastian had their headphones on and was like cooking. And so I was like, oh, I can finish watching this scene. And I, like an idiot, was like, they're going to pan away eventually. Like I was like, it's fine. I don't have to like tell Sebastian anything because they're going to pan away eventually. And all the sounds are getting drowned out by the headphones. And then they did not pan away. The scene continued. So that was the first time. But then when they do, they switch the, it's not a switch of POV, but they do the same scene again, but they like continue having sex. I thought that they were going to stop. I don't have to give any warning to anybody because I know where this scene stops. Um, And then it continued and I looked the pervert. (laughs) I looked the pervert for putting people in situations. And I know I hadn't seen it before, but I was like, at one point, at what point do I stop like, looking at the TV like a normal person. At what point do I like, am I allowed to break and acknowledge that this scene has been going on way longer than I thought it would in mixed company? (laughs) But as Mila has said before, like Mila has said, bring sex back to movies. I think that is the reason why I thought the scene would stop. I've been so trained to believe that we're about to like pan away to a window. context, that makes Mila sound so horny. (laughs) I mean, if the shoe fits. (laughs) make movies hard again it's not that i want more sex i want better sex i want weirder better sex define what you mean by weirder and horror they always miss the the potential there to like have some really interesting visual marrying of like eroticism and horror people are more squeamish about like seeing pussy on screen like you know than they are about seeing violence I love this movie. I have a poster of The Handmaiden in my room. See, that's fruity of you. I want to save that clip for so many, like, reactions. See? Now, that's fruity of you. Okay, so, first of all, I thought it was wild, and I did not know that this was originally based on a 2002 novel, historical crime novel, that is set in Victoria era by Welsh lesbian author Sarah Waters. And that it was adapted to be about 1930s Korea as it's being occupied by Japan. And I thought that was a beautiful like appropriation of like some novel to the setting. And it's, it works really well in terms of like even the, the author of the original novel has said how like, we, like it worked really seamlessly into that context as well. 
It's during Japan's colonial rule in Korea, and Korea became under the protectorate in 1905, and then a formal there was a formal annexation in 1910, and it remained under Japanese domination until 1945. And Koreans were required to undergo cultural and even spiritual assimilation while being taught that they were inferior. So it affected everything. There was the religion, language, education, just general social values, media, propaganda, fashion, and just like culture more broadly. So that is the kind of context in which we're operating. Now back to the lesbian sex. I was reading a really interesting analysis. Basically, most of the stuff that I've seen about this, the criticism is talking and a lot about, it's using a lot of Laura Mulvey's The Male Gaze Theory and like what this film does to that. And there are some which are like, it is depicting it in all senses. And there are some which are like, this film challenges it. And I thought it was just kind of interesting. And I found one essay on Medium and it's called the Handmaiden, maiden, post-colonialism, gender, and the vileness of gays. And it's basically arguing that Mulvey's theory being that there's three types of gays in cinema. There's the kind of camera technical gays, there's the spectator audience gays, and then there's the kind of characters, like interpersonal gazes. And this essay said that this um, Handmaiden, I'm quoting here, challenges Mulvey's theory by deliberately subverting the audience gaze, exemplified by the scene of the perverse old men listening to Heidi Goh's pornographic recital, which is analogous to the audience's experiences of watching the sex scene between Heidi Koh and Suki. This portrayal directly contradicts Mulvey's theory of the passive female subject and challenges the notion of the privileged spectator gaze in cinema. The film's effort to subvert the erotic spectacle of the two women's bodies can be observed through its wide-angle or bird's-eyed shots of sex scenes. And by avoiding close-ups of the women's bodies and only providing close-up shots when the audience views Heideko through Suki's gaze, the film implies that the intimacy is not intended for the audience's gratification, but rather for the pleasure of the two women. But yeah, in these scenes, both characters are portrayed as seeing one another in a way that is free from any imbalanced power dynamics, despite their differences in ethnicity and class. The gaze, therefore, functions to promote their equality and facilitate their sexual awakening. That was a lot. But essentially, I was kind of thinking of this and then reading uh, Visual Pleasure, Laura Mulvey's Visual Pleasure. And I was thinking that I don't actually think that this is a challenging or disproving of her theory. I think she was summarizing cinema up until that point. And I think this film is doing exactly what she hoped radical cinema would do with like the gays. I mean, I'm speaking for her. I don't know. I don't think it's like a contradiction. I think the fact that it's depicting all these different gazes and problematizing that in the sex scenes is exactly the point. I don't disagree that I think this film at least makes some efforts to like you said problematize I'm not sure it it, in my opinion goes that far but I think it isn't laying out its it's like spectral gaze in the same way that we see a lot of films do especially when like depicting desire and especially like lesbian sex I think there's kind of an added layer of like sexualization objectification I really I do like this movie but I don't understand why people think that it is visually something radical I think there are other shots that feel objectifying but only in the sense that we are seeing a character experiencing desire and I think that 
we cannot remove sexuality from sometimes objectification that's the nature of human desire I know that's like super complicated with added like cultural values and like gender politics but I think that the narrative of the film their like erotic connection together and that in the context of like them freeing themselves from you know the time that they were and there could have been a lot darker insinuations towards the sexual violence that was going on at that time towards Korean women and instead I think it addressed a lot of that like sexual violence and sexual subjugation through this sort of eroticism and like pornography and the fact that she was essentially performing this pornographic literature that was a really interesting way to approach it but therefore I think that's where the strength is like these two women who managed to free themselves just from the ways that the men around them were using them for sexual pleasure like they find it themselves and their sex together is something messy and not performative but I don't think that's something technically seen as strongly through the the camera's gaze personally I mean there are like there was that shot when she has her finger in her mouth and it's like that looks a little bit like a POV shot you'd find on Pornhub but like who cares like I don't think it needs to be wholly radical there's like only so many things you can do with a fucking camera I wanted to clarify that because I started with someone else's opinion and I should have started with my own (laughs) being that I think I kind of disagree with you Mila I think sorry (laughs) my opinion is I disagree with you I think there's something entirely performative about every single time they hook up I think the lesbian sex scenes I think that this film does interesting things with the male gaze in that it uses the male gaze entirely to the point where it's a comment on a male gaze on the male gaze right I think as you said this is women this is a Heidiko is, is learning about or having sex after if we get to section three where it splices back to the lesbian sex scene that we watched the first time right and it does a whole it doubles the time of the length of the sex scene and it happens right after Heidiko is reading to a group of men about a lesbian sex erotica and then it splices to her immediately like going back to the memory of or or scene of her having sex with Suki I think that is like her only knowing how to have sex through a kind of pornographic lens through a male gaze and by switching from like the audience the male audience's like visceral reactions to her reading and then going right to a lesbian sex scene that the audience has already seen and presumably enjoyed is what becomes subversive about it and why I think it does interesting things in how the camera is playing with like audience gaze and camera technical gaze. Because all of a sudden we get different shots of them as well. Like it's wider and less close up and we can see. And this is as we get more context anyway to their relationship. So I think there's something entirely kind of male gazy. And I think they're the sex that they do, like it's maybe it's me giving uh, the director too much credit, but I think it is like, on a first watch of this film, I would be like, this is like the most male-directed lesbian sex scene ever. On a second watch of it, though, I'm kind of like, that's the whole point. This is about a f- film about the male gaze and voyeurism and a woman who's been like sexually abused and forced to read erotica her whole life. Then kind of them both having like very virtual, uh, like kind of perf- like pornographic kind of scenes. Almost like you said, the finger and mouth symbol is, is kind of like something off Pornhub, but hotter. And like, just 
different moments in it where they, they they're like very loud they're like almost overly vocal they're extremely infantilized and i think like asian women in porn like especially tend to be infantilized like there's this whole like schoolgirl thing i think and they're infantilizing themselves and it's a comment of course on like the trust and the innocence and the fact that the characters are like infantilizing the other and thinking that the other's naive and when actually they're kind of double crossing each other right so there's that happening but i think it's also just a comment on like how we the audience were previously aroused by this scene and how we're kind of no better than the men who are listening to the th- to the porn now watching it again with that kind of context and deliberate splicing and that's why i think it's interesting and what it why i think it's doing more with talking about the male gaze or com- or dismantling a male gaze because it's just forcing you to recognize that you in fact have one rather than trying to seamlessly make you as Laura Mulvey would say about previous films try to seamlessly have a male gaze that's naturalized and you don't even question it this time you are forced to question it I'm actually going to come in with a, a different sort of analysis of it and like the male gaze and with Heideko's uncle being a Korean man who sold out his country for a gold mine I think him allowing his niece and at one point his wife to be sexually manipulated and objectified by these Japanese men who are at auctions kind of speaks to what actually happened to Korean women under Japanese occupation because they were there were horrific sex crimes that took place and kidnappings. But under the occupation, I mean, Korean people weren't even allowed to eat Korean rice. Like everything that was harvested was given to Japan. And that's why there's so many Korean recipes that use like barley or other things instead of rice or other types of rice, because all the white rice was like given to Japan and all these things that made Korea, Korea was taken away. And I think you kind of see this play out with the characters within the film. He is sold out his country, he sold out his family in order to make a fortune. And then in the end, he's still being, she's a part of a a greater plot to be further manipulated by a man. And I think their relationship is, in a way, takes back the power that is stolen from them as women during this time period, because they had so little agency. And after the war and after the occupation, there was very little acknowledgement of all the exploitation of women that had went on from both sides. There was a lot of shame if you were one of the women who had been a comfort woman, who had been through so much suffering. And there was like a shunning of what went on. So within the film, these two characters creating a relationship and completely being separated from sexual acts with men and actually having like sexual pleasure to me is sort of radical in that sense for what the time period was and what was actually going on in that time period. I think in that final scene of Heideko being disguised as a man so that they can escape and having all of her money is really just like sort of powerful in a way because all of the agency and all of the manipulation, all the sexual abuse that she's went through as a woman and all of the manipulation is sort of turn its back because she does it in a way that is so subtle that they don't even expect it to come from her. And she's her being underestimated allows her to pull off this move. And then the end she's kind of positioned in a way of greater power. And she is 
disguised as a man and on a boat and they're able to have a relationship like and be romantic with each other in public because of this and I just think for the time period that the film is set in this is all very radical in the commentary of like comparing what to what was actually happening during this time period as well makes these scenes a bit more complex than just being sex scenes that seem like they're from the male gaze or that that they're explicit just for shock factor. I think there's so much more going on because honestly, during this time period in general, like women were not having sex for pleasure. There was no effort to make the woman do anything, but one break her virginity to produce babies. There was no effort for that. So the fact that there was pleasure and emotions behind the sex I think the radicalness comes into that because that was not things those were not things that were allowed for women during this time period and particularly not in occupation I love hearing y'all talk I love being back at it because it makes me think about things differently I was I guess confused I mean not confused but like I was like I'll figure this out later how I felt about the scenes where where she's like reading the pornography out loud and there's like this you know, they're in these, they're very buttoned up. They're in these suits. They're like not reacting. They're very like um, stoic faced while she's, you know, saying all these explicit things. And that was like literally me watching the movie, trying not to react to like the explicit scenes I was watching because I was in mixed company. And it made me think about watching this in a theater versus watching it in private. And like, I assume this is like a big visual epic. Like you're meant to watch it in a theater. And to be in the audience watching these really intimate scenes in mixed company would force you to be sat like those men, you know, not reacting because you don't want, like, it's just like a very different experience. So I think that like those scenes are really effective in doing what you were saying, Louisa, which is like projecting the gaze onto the audience or causing the audience to reflect on how they are consuming I guess, like erotic or like intimate things between women. So like if she's reading a lesbian sex scene and they're sitting there watching and we're watching a lesbian sex scene and we're sitting there watching, like we're meant to sort of like see ourselves in that moment. But thinking about what Taya is saying about like women being used as tools in war and like how can these characters divest themselves from that violent present because like for us it's like okay we're thinking about the violent history and we have the gift of retrospect to think about like all the sexual violence that went on during this time in their present like to me though the two scenes are sort of like break from that gaze and are like the most radical is the masturbation scene when he's like describing their wedding night and she's got the I don't know if it's like a needle or a razor or something like that that she uses to cut her hand and get blood on the sheets but like she's like not going to consummate this relationship there's like something about that scene is like also very erotic also like at times violent and we're sort of like the uncle's uh, like perverted desire like tell no tell me what happened like tell me for real you must be lying or like this is not like the stories right like the meaning in those terms this is not like the porn that i've consumed why is what you're describing not like how I imagine a wedding night is supposed to be from all these things that he's consumed. And then the other like scene that reminds me of it is like, or not scene, but like multiple instances where like they're, t- they're describing her as frigid essentially. And what we know is that she's queer and like probably not attracted to any of 
these men in the first place. But, you know, she's been subjected to horrible abuse her whole life. So why would she be? But they keep being like, she, the way that she, she doesn't look at me like somebody who is attracted to men. Like she doesn't, she, like they just think she's maybe like asexual or like isn't interested in anything at all. And I think him realizing that like, no, she does have desires. Like Ty is saying, she like does want to have sex for pleasure, just not with you. And then, you know, I think it's interesting that she's the one who puts on the fake mustache. She's the one who, like, decides she's going to, like, throw it off in the end and have this super radical relationship that probably could not have existed during that time, no matter what boat you get on. I don't know what gay country they think they're going to. I think those are the moments in plot for me that divest from the gays question. So, like, the, the, their sex is also informed by the pornography that she is forced to read. So she's like, I'm going to have sex with you she keeps saying like or suki keeps saying like i'm gonna have sex with you the way that the the count will how he will everything they're doing is informed by like how how a man would want to see this happen or how a man would want to do it they admittedly out loud to themselves in the act will say that and i think that's like we've talked about that in other episodes about like damn like why is porn so uh prevalent in your sex life even when you like don't want to be acting out the things that happen in porn like because everybody consumes it it'll trickle down to you like if all she's been reading is things that a man desires all she knows how to do is an act in a way that a man desires and like clearly they're having a good time so i'm not i'm not trying to like say that like they've done the sex wrong right because i think the radical thing is like they were able to use what they know of sex which is like so fucked up and what we all know of sex today is so fucked up and like still derive pleasure from the knowledge that you do have so in that way i'm like okay maybe the literal lens the camera lens is showing me what i am expecting but what is happening plot wise and character wise in their development is the thing that sort of like breaks that usual pattern as far as like me the audience because you're forcing me to do a lot of self-reflection every like when you return to the sex scene when you return to these like moments that are erotic like I think I felt like I was given a little bit of a talking to but also like the pleasure is not absent right it's like not a bad sex scene I don't feel like yucky at the end of it and I think that in and of itself is an accomplishment but yeah I just like that just speaks to how good the plot is and how good the twists are and how good it ends it's just like satisfying you mentioned that you disagreed because I didn't think it was performative sorry I misspoke and that I didn't think it was performative in a sense that it was only there to like serve this lesbian sex specifically was only there to serve like as something pleasurable for the audience oh I don't th- I think they enjoy it like I I didn't mean to come across like we're only watching it as a comment on the male gaze. I think they're absolutely supposed to be enjoyed. Like that I agree with both of what you guys, Taya and Zeb have said that they are reclaiming some pornographic version of sex and doing it for themselves. Like at the end when they're literally reacting that scene that she read out and then like there's like chiming balls and they're just like giggling. I think it's like both humorous that they're like mocking like the percep the pornographic perception. Because I liked what you said about like performativity and like it plays with role. It's like there's a lot of role play because they're like there's trickery and there's like deception, but also sex is performative. Like I really liked what you said, and I just I that's like 
where I agree with you that the film does well as it plays with it structurally. But I think that I struggle with this, like there's a bit of an obsession with like stripping things down to this male gaze, like shot for shot of how it captures sex. And I think that Cabin in the Woods, it's not a comparable film in many ways, but we talked about the male gaze because it's a parody. And so any, any sort of like referential throwaway to you know the sort of hypersexual male gazy slasher horror shots that we get like yes it is satirizing those for like a comedic effect but I I think that at the end of the day regardless of the context like the audience watching something captured in that very voyeuristic way they're probably going to be aroused by it and I think that it's like maybe too much credit that to give to audiences to expect them to watch a film that's maybe particularly erotic and them to be thinking, yeah, I really understood the way that, you know, the film, and that's, you know, what knuckleheads like us do. However, I'm really glad that this film does it so well because it's such an important commentary on Korean history. Ty touched on all the poignant ways that like these two women finding some pleasure, like regardless of whether, I I think I, I, I give more to them in terms of them finding like a sense of their like playing around with sex like obviously they have a blueprint a way of sex that's been established for them by the male figures in in their lives and society at the time but I think the sex seems like yeah they they're obviously like operating from that awareness of performing sex and yeah, they start off being like, yeah, and I touch you here and oh, you're so wet and warm. But then it's kind of like they lose themselves in it because they're like, oh, this feels fucking good. Then um, them just still being trapped a little bit in that like like framework of, of sex that they've been taught. I want to get more into the male gaze as not appropriated by critics, but as purported by Ms. Mulvey herself. I think like there's been much debate about the actual sex scenes. Like at, I'm reading a quote, um, Laura Miller at Slate magazine was like, the maid and her mistress fall back into the tired visual cliches of pornographic lesbianism, their bodies offered up for the camera's delectation in a carefully arranged exhibition that would fit right into the uncle's collection. But Gia Tolentino for The New Yorker says, and I quote, But the women know what they look like, it seems. They are consciously performing for each other. And Park is deft at extracting the particular sense of silly freedom that can be found in enacting a sexual cliche. At the end of the movie, the two of them giggle, recreating a scene Heidegger once read out loud to the old male perverts. It's well-trod and it is pornographic, and yet they've acted themselves all the way to freedom thus far. I liked that kind of reading of it in the sense that it is exactly that like it's completely pornographic and it is like it was based on the exploitative material but like that in a sense kind of no longer matters because they're enjoying themselves and there's a kind of silliness in in it as well as just making a mockery of the audience for being like well here you you wanted you wanted this and now here it is do you know what I mean like this is the pervert's imagination and yet here we are having a whale of a time having a bull having a it kind of reminds me of like you know those you know those fantasies that are like oh i bet girls when they go to sleepovers they like hang out and talk about boys and then they fuck each other 
That's literally what happened. That is what happened. I mean, sometimes that is what happened. I cannot deny that. I wanted to pick up on what you said, Taya, um, when you're talking about the kind of that was way too perky of an intro for what I'm about to say, but the colonialist, <laughs> the colonialist aspect of the film. Because in that essay, I quoted again from Medium, the handmade in postcolonialism, gender, and the violence of gays. They talk about um, Homi Baba's sly civility um, theory. I'll quote here, which is the way in which the colonized comply with some cultural practice of the colonizer for empowerment to acquire agency and in turn use it to resist and subvert the hegemonic power. Essentially, compliance is a strategy that Heidegger and Suki use to emancipate themselves from the restraint of colonialism, and in this context, heteropatriarchy. They initially acquiesce to Fujiwara's plan, but simultaneously devise a counterplan, ultimately subverting his patriarchal authority and decolonizing the patriarchal structure at the same time. Through this act of civility, they regain the very agency that was deprived from them. And I think that kind of encapsulates nicely what you were saying, Taya, about how they do find freedom through their relationship. I didn't mean to suggest that because it's performative and because it's critiquing, I think, male gaze as a whole, that it that they can't find freedom and do something radical within it. I think they do. The big difference between what the male gaze in this movie and the male gaze in, I'm going to use the blue as the warmest color as a comparison, is the sex scene in this movie don't feel like they're there to highlight the nudity of the actors within them. It very much just feels like a sex scene, like you're watching people having sex, but it also serves to the plot. Versus in Blue is the Warmest Color, that's another sex scene that has been discussed a lot. And throughout it, the ways in which they are having sex in it don't necessarily make sense for the act itself, but more so for the camera to capture the body of the actors. Like there's a a point at which there is like oral sex going on and the actor, the camera's like on one of the actor's butts as they're like standing up giving oral sex (laughs) or like kneeled in like there's a lot of boob shots and just like more highlighting of the body than of the of the sex between the characters to show their connection I think that's another reason why despite the fact that I didn't love the movie passages I thought it was well done because the sex scenes did not feel Like they were there to highlight the actors' bodies. It was very much to show the connection between them or what was, how it served the plot. I think this movie does that very well. And that's one reason why I never really thought of it in the context of the male gaze watching it. Because I don't feel like it, I don't feel like there was a gratuitous show of nudity just to show it. It wasn't giving like Sam Levinson. Any opportunity you have to drag that man, you take. Yes. I will never take my foot off his neck. <laughs> but it's very much the scenes within them are, they're not, they make sense. Briefly wanted to talk about the scene um, where they're, they haven't had sex yet, but they're like undressing each other. I feel like scenes like that always get categorized as like the female gaze because they're focused on nudity and body parts that like aren't typical to or like necessarily like associated with sex. So we're like, looking at her back we're looking at her shoulders we're looking at her wrists and her hands and like da 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 and there's i keep like feeling like we're being fed this message that like sapphic attraction or attraction that is like supposed to be outside of the male gaze is not focused in the same 
areas that other people are. I'm like, I want to see titties and ass too. I'm sorry. I'm not turned on by like the curvature of your back. I, I'm just not. I think a, a nice back is a nice back. <laughs> I'm like, baby got back. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the way that the camera is like, is like f- focused or like super zoomed in. It's just like not even the way that I would show that body part in a way that I would consider like the attractive oh, wow, way to show this. No, no. But like, this is to say that I don't think that that is like, I don't think that was the attempt to be the female gaze. I just think that that was like, the way that they it was the first time they like touched in any real way it it feels like a little bit of a cop-out to be like oh but I'm not looking at breasts I'm not looking at mouths I'm not looking at these like parts that are considered like pornographic that that is all of a sudden not the male gaze anymore I think that like yeah okay I don't think those scenes are necessarily more intimate because we're focusing on like something's innocent so in quote-unquote innocent as like undoing somebody's button or like you know, helping somebody take their necklace off. Like I don't think that it, I guess it is an activity that like women would do together with a, in a different way with different intentions. Like a scene of a man taking a woman's necklace off or unbuttoning a dress or you know t- taking off a stocking. Like it just has a different association in my mind, but like if I know that these women are intimate, I know that they're probably attracted to each other. I don't I still think it's the male gaze or like what like one of those I don't know I've just been thinking about that scene a lot because I think a lot of movies that self-represent as being in the female gaze will have scenes like that and I don't think that they necessarily are or do accomplish that the reason I was thinking along those lines and you've kind of like formulated my thoughts on it for me is that as I was watching those those scenes where they're undressing or they're playing dress up I think a lot of the reason that there are so many like period sapphic dramas films is because of this a lot of it is like the there's two things there's the costuming which i think people like because there's so many fucking layers that it like allows for this sort of like extended time of undress which i think equates for a lot of people like extended amounts of time to like building intimacy heightened intimacy a lot of the back shots sorry (laughs) Shots of their backs. Shots of their backs. I think a lot of that is just like the nature of the time period because it's like they, they're taking so long to undre- get undressed. It's not like in like modern rom-coms, they're basically ripping their clothes off. I think that people have let themselves be convinced that it's the same thing with rom-coms or like romance novels that like a certain like way to think about intimacy and desire is like women's and it really fucks me off because it normally just means like sanitized and slow to like categorize it as women's as a blanket statement really annoys me and what I do like in this film is that the sex it does not reflect that and obviously we've talked about how like a lot of it is them reenacting and like performing roles of like how they think sex should be but it feels like quite frenzied it's not so passive. I think passive is what bugs me about it because like I, to me, it's revolutionary for women to not be passive in their sexual encounters or to be sexually aggressive or frenzied like you're describing. And like, otherwise it's just like we had sex by accident. We fell into bed and like, oops. <laughs> they seem like they're discovering their own 
desire as it's happening like, as they're playing into the roles they're also being like hey that also feels fucking amazing it just plays out in a really natural it's wrapped up in a lot of you're supposed to like question alliances blah 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 blah. there's all of that but I think that as it portrays their sexuality and their desire it doesn't fall into the trappings of that like sanitize is a good word that Louise used like sanitized version of what people consider to be like female sexuality which um it doesn't annoy me First of all, the scene of them unbuttoning and stuff, I, again, don't think that was a very long period shot, female gaze, subversive at all. Again, I thought it was quite male gazy. It's like a whole shot of like her, her tits in a corset. How is that the tasteful kind of slow <laughs> female gaze? I think that was equally, like I said, at no point do I think that we escape like a camera POV. Like, I think it's all quite staged and porny. We've already talked about how that can still be like, they can still reclaim that and et cetera, et cetera. But um, at no point do we ever escape this because I think at this point in the film, especially we're still in the character's view or naive view of the other, right? Like we're still thinking because they are performing what the men have told them the other person is as well, which is this person's naive. This woman is naive and you can manipulate them. And they've both been taught that about each other by like the real central antagonist. So at this point in the film, I think there's still, like, the infantilizing, I'm going to go back to it, when Suki, for the whole first half of the film, we, in a weird way, is, like, repeatedly calling her her baby. Like, when she's in the bath, she gives her a lollipop to make bath time, quote-unquote, sweet. Um, she says, like, she talks, like, oh, I'll, I'll show her one thing and then put her to bed. Uh, she, she says, it's so cute when she talks about her boobs. She says she wishes she had breast milk so she could feed her. They lost me that. Yeah, that was, <laughs> that was weird, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's all done with the, F, with the like, thing of, like, sh- emphasizing the naivety that the other woman's been told about the other, you know? Um, and then, because it also switches, because, like, then when we get more of Heidiko's perspective, we, we know how she's actually being quite manipulative. And then Suki actually seems quite juvenile when she says, when she's, like, especially when she's learning to write, which I know is due to, like, Korean women and being deprived of their own culture and deprived of their like language and didn't have like the education um especially because she was from a like a rural poor black background um but it she seemed quite juvenile she was writing out the names and she says okju haidiko mummy daddy and she repeats it like over and over again and it sounds very babyish and then haidiko also says shall we play maid like before sarah waters the novelist um, commented on this in a Guardian interview, and she said that um, she thinks that Park's film is very faithful, quote unquote, to the idea that women are appropriating a very male pornographic tradition to find their own way of exploring their desires, end quote, and simultaneously deconstructing those traditions. So just essentially what we've been talking about here. So uh, lesbian author of the original text kind of agrees. Can we talk about the twist? There's two, I suppose, like the twist, one that we believe that Heidiko has betrayed Suki. Um, and the first, I guess the first third, I don't know if it's the first, if it's when that reveal happens. At the end of the first part, when we're led to believe that she's betrayed her and sent her in her place. And then it is revealed that they were in fact working together. And we like, re- we, re- we sort of rewatch a lot of scenes with a different lens and like a different point of view and with different knowledge. And I, I don't know if y'all had thoughts, I guess my question 
that I was thinking over my head is like, why, why are they so willing to be a part of his scam, right? Kasuki's a scammer by training. So she's ready to scam because like, that's all she knows. And she like, is very excited to have the money and the clothes and the jewelry. And uh, Heidi Ko's excited to be free of her fucking abusive fucked up situation like they both have their motivations for sort of like aligning themselves to a man at first and then they have a crisis of sexuality and they're like let's team up i guess like 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 three act structure about like who is aligning themselves with a man and for what reasons and what do they gain from it and then like put in the context of now the uncle whose name i forget the uncle and the count sort of have this final conversation in the basement where they're sort of piecing together maybe what has gone on, but I don't think that they totally have figured it out. Like the women are such compelling characters that I think I genuinely forget that the men have been so thoroughly bamboozled and that they are actually the center of the, of the film and they are the antagonists that drive the plot forward. And I guess, yeah, I just wondered how y'all felt the first time watching since this was my first time watching and having to like piece all those things together. I watched it in like recent years, like in uni, well, was it since uni, I guess. But I think it was just like, you just watch it knowing the twist. I don't know. I don't know how it changes it, I guess. I guess it does change it because you think like, you can notice the points where she's being a bit wry or coy or like, whatever, um, for both of them. They both have very different motivations for their original like plans. Like, the, the, like where they end up is so far from what they intend to do. Besides that they, you know, run away with the inheritance, which they've taken out in cash. I think that's crazy. It is. And how far can they get with that inheritance, like, realistically? I think it depends. Like, if they are going to continue, we have to remember, like, Suki is quite a experienced pickpocket. So it's not like she can't hustle to get them more money later. So I think they can definitely keep playing this long game. There's another thing that made me think it's kind of pornographic. I mean, they are each other's like foil when we don't know about the allegiance. Like one is kind of, at first it's Suki thinking that she's teaching the innocent Heidiko about sex. And then you realize, well, no, it was Heidiko who knows a lot like, about wow, sex. Wow, you must be a natural. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there, and then it kind of switches. And I think it's various points. They're kind of mirroring opposite impulses or, yeah, or one's being protective of the other. I think they're also like made to look quite similar, like especially when they're playing dress up and it's like the hair styles that they do, like exact matching. And there's like a shot of them from behind with both of their like hair looking exactly the same. I think when they're 69ing, they're made to look so, so like symmetrical in a lot of these sex scenes in a way that some critics as well have said is a bit like close, like another gay, uh, an article on anothergays.com, Charlotte Richard Andrews said that the perfect symmetry of the lovers um, in the final scene, that kind of lands quite close to like porno homogeny. And I, yeah, I just think that's kind of interesting. And I was kind of wondering for what purpose, is it also to kind of comment on, is it bringing them so close to each other to mirror each other to almost acknowledge their cultural differences or make that more glaring? I didn't see any bearing, if I'm honest. I interpreted, like, the clothing thing as, like, that was her main motivation besides the money. She's like, I would like to wear those fancy clothes. I would like to wear those fancy gloves and shoes and jewels that she has. That was more about the desire for what she had. Like, like, we've talked about, you know, the conflation of, like, sexual desire and just, like, jealousy or in all types of 
gay films that we've covered before. And I honestly interpreted Suki as being so envious of Heidi Ko in the first third of the movie when her plot is like, I'm just going to take what this lady has. Straight up, that was her only motivation. I want to take what she has. I want to live the life that she has. I want to like move through the world in the way that she's able to do. And then when she discovers that her life is actually fucking horrible, like those motivations go to shit. And then the mirroring stops for me, at least, because they have to reinvent themselves. So there's nothing to copy or mirror. Okay, this is where it goes back to Laura Mulvey, I think. So I was reading Visual Pleasure and I came across, like, I guess it's like the original reason why we have like a male gaze in cinema, right? I'm just going to read it. So Mulvey says, in psychoanalytic terms, the female figure poses a deeper problem. She also connotes something that the look continuously circles around but disavows her lack of penis implying a threat of castration and hence unpleasure. Ultimately, the meaning of women is sexual difference, the absence of the penis as visually ascertainable, the material evidence on which is based on the castration complex essential for the organization of entrance to the symbolic order and the law of the father. Thus, the woman as icon displayed for the gaze and enjoyment of men, the active controllers of the look, always threatened to evoke the anxiety it originally signified. The male, unconscious, has two avenues of escape from this castration anxiety. Preoccupation with the reenactment of the original trauma, um, so investigating the woman and demystifying her mystery, counterbalanced by the devaluation and punishment or saving of the guilty object, or else complete disavowal of castration by the substitution of a fetish object or by turning the represented figure into a fetish a fetish so that it becomes reassuring rather than dangerous. So that was a lot of theory, but essentially I think that is quite interesting when you apply it to this film, because essentially we have a young, because um, we have a young girl who's been like sexually abused by her uncle Obviously, whenever we talk about the monstrous feminine and we rely on kind of Freudian theory, it is talking in terms of like a gender binary based on like physical differences like penis, vagina. But for the sake of talking about it in this conversation, if we're kind of viewing an underlying fear of castration as the need for why men subjugate women in film and why the uncle is like subjugating her, I think you can kind of apply that quote to the context of the film because it's like, it says that the avenues that men choose are either to kind of demystify the woman's body or like make them a fetish so that they kind of rob them of their castrating potential. And I think that's true. Obviously, he spends his life like making her into like this sexual object that is entirely at his control, reading like male literature to the performance of his audience. But I think underneath all that, there still lurks this underlying thing of castration particularly with like the teeth filing scene I think a little bit when she says my tooth is too sharp it's a bit of a reach here but I definitely thought about like also because the film is so much about trust and who can trust each other at different points I just thought that was like quite an intimate it makes that scene extra intimate when she's like filing down her too sharp tooth and I think it is like hinting at a kind of femme castratrice potential like Mulvey says that the female image as a castration threat constantly endangers the unity of kind of all the gazes in the film and bursts through the world of illusion as an intrusive, static, one-dimensional fetish. Thus, the two looks materially present in time and space are obsessively subordinated to the neurotic needs of the male ego, blah, blah, blah. 
there's castration anxiety in the films that we watch, which threatens to undo all the kind of gazes in the film. And I think we see that here. If we're looking at castration anxiety merely as it might symbolize like female autonomy generally. And it's just interesting that it does end in like the dungeon with like the main male antagonist getting about to get castrated, albeit by the uncle, but then he dies as well. So it's kind of like interesting that it ends with, and his fingers get cut off, which we know is a kind of symbol of castration anxiety or a substitute for it in place of a phallus. But it does kind of go full circle in that we have like a ridiculously like traumatized and controlled in such a sexual manner, Heideko. Um, and her her sexual potential is so restrained and organized for her in every step of the way. Maybe we fear subconsciously her like sexual power. And then when she gets it, it's interesting that the men in that film simultaneously like die or lose their sexual power and power more generally. And that's why I think it was kind of more doing more to dismantle what Mulvey was talking about in a Freudian sense of the male gaze, rather than just talking about male gaze as appropriated by critics. And I think therein is where we find a monstrous feminine portrayal because I think there's an underlying castration anxiety throughout as it might symbolize female autonomy. I definitely agree with you, Louisa. I would think this film kind of fits into femme castratrice because Heideko is kind of not in the traditional sense of what we normally see as like a rape revenge or like an exploitation film. But I think Throughout the film, she is so sexually exploited by her uncle and by the Count that her reclaiming her sexual power and her relationship with Suki sort of becomes a castrating element. And when she does take the money at the end and then assumes like a male identity, it kind of feels like a financial form of castration and also like she took she took what would have been his power, which would have been her money anyway, and the life that he was going to have. So it's like she financially castrated him and then like castrated him completely anyway. And then also the cutting off of fingers. I think there's quite a, a bit of the elements in the film that definitely make me think of like femme castratrice. Also like the scene where she puts her finger in Suki's mouth is like the vagina dentata that anytime you see like a mouth and something disappearing into it is kind of like playing into fear of castration anxiety i think this film does a good job of playing with castration anxiety in different ways than i would say the traditional ways i forget that mulvey's theory is based in psychoanalysis and to be honest i think like how i apply the male gaze is like the thing I take from it is definitely that sort of like sense of voyeurism, which obviously like has a psychoanalytic grounding, but I think can also translate quite well into like an increasingly media dense sort of digital age of pornography and like sex being something you really only see online, like captured in that way. But back to why I just never feel like films can at least for me feel like a sort of radicalized overturning of the male gaze is because they are operating with a piece of technology that was created by men the visual language was established by men I just don't think there's very much that can be done and I'm sure that I'll be proven wrong eventually this film is a good example because I think it is technically very good I think that thematically it's really strong 
but I still wouldn't like come back and say that it's a complete like radical reimagining of the male gaze and that's fine like it's not something I want it to be but I think like you guys have all mentioned like it does it does reflect on the male gaze because it's dealing with the concept of pornography and sexual oppression and subjugation I think it ties all of those things well together maybe this is a really like too much of like a purist take but I think that the photographic camera and the moving image I think those things are like innately objectifying philosophically you are an object (laughs) yeah and even in a film you're just like a series of photos and to be fair like people aren't looking at a photo and being like look at that object like they're obviously seeing an essence of a person I just think that we like we can't give these things so much credit to like dismantle power structures and to formulate these like political ideologies and manifestos like voyeurism in the context of the male gaze is like you said it's about female sexual difference and I guess in a sense like alleviating that fear by objectifying women I feel like it's become more and more like in the digital age about that objectification being tied to commodification in porn in like selling images of bodies so I don't know I think it's come quite far away from that really psychoanalytic base But yeah, I think it's always an interesting framework to talk about these things with. I think this film is subverting the gazes in the way that I think Mulvey, Laura Mulvey, would hope it would. Just because of this last paragraph she has about when she says that there's a complex interaction of looks, which is specific to film, and that basically the kind of first job of any radical film is to free the look of the camera into its materiality in time and space and the look of the audience into dialectics, passionate detachment. There is no doubt that this destroys the satisfaction, pleasure, and privilege of the quote-unquote invisible guest and highlights how film depended on voyeuristic active-slash-passive mechanisms, end quote. And I think in summary, I think this film is doing that in how... It, it it does play with the kind of plot twists and the framing. I think it is kind of playing with the camera's gaze when it does a whole sex scene that we've already seen, but does it once more to reveal a different perspective onto it. And then I also think it's playing with like the audience cannot be an invisible guest quote to to the film because it reminds you, it kind of shames you almost a little bit for your enjoyment of their kind of sexual pleasure. So in that definition of what a film that is subverting the three kind of gazes of cinema, not necessarily quote unquote one big male gaze, but the three gazes, I think this film is doing that. So, and I like it. And it makes me think hard about things. I bet it does make you think hard. My God, woman, take a shower. (laughs) I kind of respectfully disagree with you, Mila, about film not being able to be disrupt the male gaze or to be radical because I think film is film and photography frankly are like two of the most radical forms of media and I think saying that because the lens and the craft has been so heavily male influenced that it can't be changed is kind of a bit of a a take that kind of lessens the responsibility that I think filmmakers have 
in modern day. I think there's a lot of ways that even porn has been disrupted from the way that it was originally created. There's a lot of women who entered the industry and found different ways to create pornography in ways that feel less objectifying or less targeted towards a male audience. I feel like people making their own porn with OnlyFans has also changed the way that porn has been created because they have so much more agency over it. And as we have more people in the industry, more filmmaking styles, more female cinematographers, I think there is so much space for there to be different gazes applied to media. I think it's hard to get out of the male gaze because we are conditioned to live with it. And we also usually see ourselves from the male gaze. When you look at yourself, you're typically seeing yourself from the male gaze because that's what society really pushes onto everyone, even other men. But I think within media, there are so many different ways in which there's been a departure from that in recent years. I'm not saying like there's this radical force of change happening in the industry because I don't believe that to be true. I am not delusional. I very much work in this industry and I don't think that's the case. But I think there are so many more styles and ways that people are able to create agency and create these pockets of magic where there maybe isn't a full departure from the male gaze, but there is a way in which they give the characters agency, the bodies. There's intimacy coordinators who have come into the industry in recent years who've really reframed the way that sex scenes and nudity are are done within film and television to kind of make the actors more comfortable, to create better visuals, to make people more comfortable on set. And I think it's kind of minimizing the real impact of what film and media and the camera can do if you really are using it in ways to be radical. It's just very male-dominated, so we see the same thing a lot, and we see a lot of the male gaze, but I don't think that means that there isn't a way to not just see, like, titties. And I don't think, like, people critiquing it for not being radical enough or not reaching its potential is a way for people to say they hate sex scenes. I just think there is so much more that can be done and that has been done by other filmmakers. And I would say even while this movie does definitely have like aspects of the male gaze, whatever, it's not gonna, it's not going to be completely perfect, but I think it's a very technically perfect film. And those points in which you see the male gaze do connect with the narrative of the story. And as me and Louisa have said, we might have not have been the most fond of the movie passages. That film was one that I saw quite recently that I thought was really such a departure from the way that I've seen sex scenes shot in media. Even recently, I've been watching Fellow Travelers as well, and I felt quite similarly in which the sex scenes are just shot very differently. You can see the impact of having intimacy coordinators and having so much input in the framing, the way that things are shot. So I don't know. I think I quite disagree with you on that. I'm not saying that people should stop trying to do it. I think that I have quite a strong separation between film in the entertainment industry and film within politics, activism, art. I hold those 
quite and there there's overlaps of course but I think in terms of their function I like separate them because films within entertainment we see over and over again they can hold very strong political messages but without like uprooting the systems of oppression like it's basically just allowing something cyclical to continue on and people to think that consuming media that might be politically progressive is the same thing as like enacting change and I I just unfortunately don't think that's true as long as we uphold capitalism in that way even if it becomes more like socially progressive the same in porn like I agree that OnlyFans has been great for a lot of sex workers but I think fundamentally like the industry is still insanely exploitative and relies on people having to sometimes get into an industry that they don't necessarily want to because they can't like afford basic well-being and you shouldn't have to kind of like hustle to get that. For me, film as it was created, like the mechanics of the technology, I think that something truly radical for me would be people creating something new. And yes, you can do that with like the bones of film and like celluloid, but I'm very much like a burn it all to the ground and start afresh <laughs> type of person. So I think otherwise it, it, it can feel like you can't quite escape like the history of something, which isn't a bad thing. Like it means that you can be like referential, but that's why I think that getting caught up on this sense that we can somehow remove the male gaze completely from film, the mechanics of it as we still use, I think it's like maybe, maybe at least unhelpful but doesn't mean that we can't like have interesting things to say about it. Like we've all like said of this film, it definitely does reflect on it in a really interesting way. But I think just when people like turn around and they're like, oh, this film was the female gaze. It oversimplifies it, but also it feels almost like that sort of liberal progressivism of it's just like Barbie encapsulated, like look at this really easy film that, like symbolizes progress and then we don't actually have any have any structural change but yeah I totally agree with you that film is an extremely important medium but I don't know about it like I don't think it's the be all end all I think that means there's something new that can like happen like there's other technologies I think can come about maybe one day I think one of the issues with the female gaze is that people view the female gaze as something that they think will be completely separate from the male gaze. But to be quite frank, the girls are horny. Like I see how people talk about celebrities online. Book talk in the way that that has emerged as a whole thing of just people who love like smutty literature and people who really love audio erotica. And I'm not shaming anyone, but I definitely think Sometimes the way that people talk about the female gaze is as if women are removed from desiring anyone sexually. And we just view people as like, ah, beauty, everything is beautiful. And I don't think that's the truth. And when you grow up in society, you grow up with the male gaze. You grow up viewing yourself often from the male gaze. And I think as a result of that, the female gaze is certainly not as crass or sexualizing of everyone but I think there is this ideal of like the female gaze will only show like a body as a body and I think it's kind of almost naive to believe that 
women don't look at other women or other men or men or people in general and like see sexuality or like attraction when you see them and that like that gaze will only reflect as this is a human it just makes it seem as like the female gaze is just the absence of sexuality or viewing people from like a lens of (laughs) sexualness and to me it's kind of confusing like I've seen people say this about like Heartstopper for instance that it's a very like fuzzy show that feels like it's from the female gaze and I'm like it's just a show that's very cute and fun and shows a teenage romance but it has nothing to do with female gaze it's just there are children so they're not looking at each other like super horny yet that idea that there's this absence of like sexuality or sexual desire in the female gaze is what kind of confuses me about people's idea of what it should be or what it looks like I don't think it's this like mechanical way of just viewing things as like parts of a body or like just shooting things where it's like you can't really tell what anything is it's just all scrambled up and abstract it's just it doesn't quite make sense because then, like, it kind of strips women of the of sexual desire, which equally is, like, kind of problematic. And I think, to be honest, I think all art is political, whether or not you intend it to be that way or not. And everything will have messages that people take out of it. You know what we haven't actually spoken about? The fucking romance. Like, have we talked about love at all in this Valentine's episode? We're just like, yeah, so those titties. How can they be in love? They just met. I don't think they are really Come that, on. Like, in love. They are. They're like, They're like sexual comrades. <laughs> I don't know why Mila's finding this so funny. I mean, <laughs> it seems like such a modern concept to apply limerence. to this film. Oh, limerence. Well, they definitely had a lot of feelings towards each other. I think they're lovers. I would, I would agree with that assessment. She says, I don't want to marry him. If you want me to marry him, say it. And then she says, I want you to marry him. And then she slaps her because she knows that she's betraying her. And if that's not love, then (laughs) I thought I realized where I was going with that. No. Okay. She stops her suicide. They decide to be together and run away and live together. It's they they're. They had a lot of time together. I mean, as to well. be honest, I don't think in that time period you were able to really love people in the way that we can in modern day. I think that is a newer luxury. While I think this film is very technically perfect, I think the romance isn't quite built enough to where I think apparently two out of four people on this podcast were not convinced they were in love at the end of this movie. I think they were just because I think love is love has changed with modernity where we have more of a luxury of like slowly letting ourselves fall in love. We have the sometimes almost delusional idea of there being endless selections of people to fall in love with when in actuality, there's a good chance that most people you meet, you probably don't got the compatibility to fall in love with them, or maybe you will hear them talk and say, no, I think the the apps have kind of created this notion that there's like always someone else out there who maybe you vibe with better versus like back in the day the life expectancy was lower people did not have optimal times to go around like dating and courting because there was a stigma against having all the several courtships or 
several suitors. And if you didn't get the proposal after them, then people would think there was something wrong with you. So I think the option of being selective and being able to take your time in love is something that's far more modern. So in this movie, I think from the extended time that they spent together, getting to know each other, understanding each other's traumas and motivations, they were in love by the end of the movie. I think I agree with that. Um, I think they're in love from what we see of their connection and yeah, of the fact that there's a limited choice and they are each other's solace and means of escape. Um, I think they're more than sexual comrades. I think you can see feeling when she confesses. There can be feelings without love. You sound like a fuckboy. There can be feelings without love. I think don't think too hard about it. What does in love even mean? Now I'm existential. No, for fuck's sake, this is what I meant by don't think too hard about it. People really struggle to make romances that are not period pieces. And I really need us to dissect why people are unable to make modern love stories that are not cringeworthy. Is being in love now Because modern love is cringy, Taya. It just is. Just like our modern lives don't allow for the same kind of like intimacies that maybe we like. I've been saying this. Yeah, like I would love people to write me love letters instead I'm on hinge begging for a message back it's undignified i really need to know the phenomenon of why people match on hinge and then never say anything i think it's just like the illusion of choice like people think that they want like loads of options but i don't know it just doesn't actually it doesn't like it's not healthy to do that i'm gonna start giving deadlines you have three days to ask me out (laughs) and make it good Honestly, that's so good. You should put that in your prompts. I I might join you. My only rule for dating this year is that I don't think situationships actually exist and I am single and I will not acknowledge you as anything other than someone that I am going on dates with. We are not in a situationship. You are nothing until you are my actual partner. Damn, I am nothing to a lot of nobodies then. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Monfem Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod for podcast clips and more fun. Brooms up, witches out. <laughs>